the 75th Psalm. We now begin book 3 of the Psalms, which is chapters 73 through 89. And the theme of this Psalm is Justice is the Lord's. Justice belongs to our God. And the division is as the following. Verse 1 is the people's song of gratitude and adoration. Verses 2 through 5 is, The Lord reveals himself as ruling the world in righteousness. We're also going to see a call to action to remember two of our five pillars of reformation, which are soli dea gloria and sola scriptura. And verses 6 through 8 is a warning from the church to her enemies. The church warning her enemies. And boy, that beautiful hymn was beautiful, singing about the Lord's church. And verses 9 through 10 is a closing song giving glory to God and the utter defeat of the foe. And now an exposition of this grand chapter. Father, we thank you for bringing us under the authority of your word, your inerrant, infallible, sufficient scriptures. I pray, God, that you would change us. I pray that you would convict us. I pray that you would convert us. I pray that you would grow us. I pray that you would provoke us, Lord, through your word, through the teaching of your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. Beginning with verse 1, which says, Unto thee, O God, we do give thanks. Unto thee do we give thanks. For that thy name is near, thy wondrous works declare. The repetition, we give thanks, is a sake for emphasis. God is placing an emphasis on that we give thanks. We give thanks to Elohim for his wondrous deeds. We give thanks for his mere presence, that his name is even nearby. It says in Psalm 34:18, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart. You see, we must always give thanks to God for all things and rejoice always in our Lord. We must not only give him thanks for what he's done in our lives, but we also must give him thanks for what he's done in others' lives as well. And then moving forward, in verses 2 through 5, the Lord reveals himself as ruling the world in righteousness and a call to Action regarding soli dea gloria and sola scriptura. When I shall receive the congregation, I will judge uprightly. Verse 3. The earth and all the inhabitants thereof are dissolved. I bear up the pillars of it. Selah. I said unto the fools, deal not foolishly, and to the wicked, lift not up the horn. Lift not up your horn on high. Speak not with a stiff neck. In verse 2 it says, When I shall receive the congregation, I will judge uprightly. And some of your translations will say, When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. Others will say, When I select an appointed time, it is I who judge fairly. You see, this judgment time has already been set by God. And only by Him. As it says in Mark 1 and Mark 13:32, but of that day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. 
Even Christ, God Almighty, the second distinct person of the Trinity, does not even know the time of this grand, great, prolific, prophetic judgment. It says in Isaiah 32.1, Behold, the king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. And when this just judgment time comes, dear church, he will seize it and fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. God is always on time. He's never too early. And he's never been late, and he never will be. Then in verse 3 it says, And the earth and all the inhabitants thereof are dissolved. I bear up the pillars of it. Selah. Again, Selah is a, in Hebrew, as we discussed a month ago, it means press, pause. It means a pause in a stanza, like, in, like, like singing hymns, press, pause. So he presses pause. I bear up the pillars of it. Say la. Pause. At the crucial time, God will destroy and tear down every form of human government. And he will set up a kingdom that shall never, ever be moved. Because God's judicial system, God's government is perfect. Though today's human government and all political parties are corrupt spiritually, politically, and morally, but God's pillars of God's government are solid and secure. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Charles Spurgeon said this regarding this verse, when anarchy is abroad, and this is obviously as church is a Christian and as a church, we must be watchmen on the wall and watch for these things. This is what we see, what's going on in the world today politically. But when anarchy is abroad and tyrants are in power, everything is unloosed. Disillusion threatens all things. The solid mountains of government melt as wax. But even then the Lord upholds and sustains the right. I bear up the pillars of it. Hence, there is no real, real cause of fear. While the pillars stand and, 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 and stand, they must, for God upholds them. The house will brave out of the storm. In the day of the Lord's appearing, a general melting will take place. But in that day, our covenant God will be the sure support of our confidence. Amen. And we can have confidence. Not in Charles Spurgeon, not in what Charles Spurgeon said, but we can have confidence in what this verse says, verse 3, of what the Lord God says. Verses 4 through 5. I said unto the fools, deal not foolishly, and to the wicked, lift not up the horn. Lift not up your horn on high, speak not with a stiff neck. He's saying here, don't be self-confident. Don't exalt ourselves and don't exalt others. Don't toot our own horn. In other words, don't be a grandstander. He's saying to the fools or to the boastful, quit your bragging. And he says to the wicked, who do you think you are? As the scripture says, God sits in heaven and laughs in heaven. Who do you think you are? It's troublesome to see a pastor or a scholar or a theologian, an evangelist or an apologist or an author or any professing Christian toot their own horns about salvation, results, or how effective their ministry is. 
And then sometimes the bragathons become begathons. And I believe it is equally wrong when we toot their horns for them. The only horn that we ought to be tooting, church, is the Lord's horn. Boasting and bragging in the Lord and what he has done. I'm not going to step on any toes here, but I am going to step on each other's idols. I'm not saying your idols, I'm saying my idols too. We all have them. We all have sin, everybody here, including the preacher, especially the preacher. But frankly, there's sometimes too much man worship in today's Christendom, especially amongst our Reformed brethren. And I'm not talking specifically about this church, though it sometimes exists. I'm talking generally uh, about the universal church. And if this makes you angry, please, I'm not stepping on your toes. I'm stepping on your idol. And I'm stepping on my idol because I was convicted as I put the sermon together. If Christians invoke the names of their favorite fellows more than the name of Jesus Christ, they need to, they need to reread the first two commandments and repent, not repeat. Because this man worship or this man grandstanding is a real sin problem today in the church. The first commandment is this, Exodus 20, verses 2 through 3. And oh, how I need to be reminded of this daily. Then God spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What did God say? He said, I am the Lord your God. Not your favorite fellow. Not your favorite church. Not your favorite preacher. I am the Lord your God. And remember, God also said, I am a jealous God. He also said in that first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Last Sunday, while doing communion, I confessed one of my gods before this congregation. And the second commandment is this in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. There it is right there. I was thinking ahead. It's already in the scriptures. I am a jealous God, inflicting the punishment of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. By showing favor to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. God punishes those whom he whom hates God. I hated God at one time. The Bible says before I was saved, I was an enemy of Christ, at enmity with God. I was a son of perdition, a child of wrath. That's what I was. But now God says, but showing favor to thousands showing favor to God's elect, to those whom love me and keep my commandments. That God shows us favor that we would love him and return, keep his commandments. So church, let us only boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. This is Paul's admonishment to Corinth and also to Lake Arrowhead and Redlands. In the Inland Empire. For you see your calling, brethren, 
that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen. God chooses foolish things, not great men, not great women, weak things, base things, things that he once despised of. And then it says, And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. No flesh should glory in God's presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, the righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And church, that's a, a call to action from the Lord. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Let his soli dea gloria, all the glory to goes to God and God alone. Second Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 12 says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who condemn, who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. N-O-T, are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the spear which God appointed us, a spear which uh, especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other man's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Here it is again. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Applicably, Paul said in Galatians 6.14, And God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. God forbid that we would boast in any one but Christ and God Almighty. Therefore, church, God is my favorite, to say the least. Christ is my favorite preacher. His Holy Spirit is my favorite teacher. His scriptures are my favorite book, etc., etc., etc. I have lots of books. I know you have lots of books. And we all read lots of books. I think we all read lots of books. But my favorite book is Section A, Column 1. It's right there in front of me. It's the Bible. Sole Scriptura. Sole Dea Gloria. We must not forget those two pillars of our Reformation. As a church, let us be God-centered, Christ-centric, and Scripture-centered. Let the name of Jesus, the head of this church, be the most mentioned name among us. That's something we need to tell social media. 
1 Corinthians 4.10 says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Isaiah 64.6 But we are all like the unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags, but we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. On my, most, on my most righteous day, my greatest, biggest work, good works, is like a filthy rag according to the Word of God. On the church bile, under my bile, well, Pastor Mike hasn't put his up, we don't have his yet, but Robin, we don't have his yet, but on mine it says that I am nothing but excrement in God's holy hand that's what I think of myself compared to God I've never preached a sermon that was good but if one ever did come out good it was because God is good and God is great and he is holy and he is righteous and his Holy Spirit works through fools like me next in verses 6 through 8 is a warning from the church to her, her enemies a warning from the church to the world. Verse 6. For promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge who putteth down one and setteth up another. True exaltation, promotion or demotion comes from the Lord. Specifically and mainly, yes, we are part of it. Our employers might be part of that promotion, but God is the one who truly puts the person there. He is the supreme ruler. We must believe in the supremacy of Christ and of God, who lowers one and exalts another. Last November, I don't like the results of the, the presidential election. I went to bed knowing that over 70 million people voted for Trump. I was going to wake up and he was going to win by a landslide, but it didn't happen that way. How could he lose? How did he lose? And why did he lose? Church, I'll tell you why. Because God decreed and ordained that to happen. Because verse 7 says right here, the promotions are not horizontal. And verse 8 says that God is the judge and he alone puts people into office and he alone takes them down, even when it seems impossible. Even when we don't like it, God does it. So we should not be surprised, as God's word assures us, that the providence of God ordains all things to happen. Our sovereign Lord can either directly, listen to this, he either directly puts people in office through elections, uh, or directly does it himself, or he indirectly puts them there or removes them via a ballot box in an election. I'm not saying don't vote. you got to vote. Vote the right way. Vote your Christian conscience and your biblical convictions. But know this, that God is sovereign, and he will manipulate our votes any way he chooses, even if he uses the sinful actions of a man that might have committed fraud, he still will ordain and decree that to happen. And until we truly understand and really truly believe and trust that God is sovereign, that he's ruler and king over even election, we'll never have peace, church. And I find my peace in that, knowing that God is in charge, that he's sovereign, ruler, king over all. 
Nonetheless, God's will will be accomplished. God's will is always accomplished. Isn't that encouraging, folks? Isn't that good news? Verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. Hey, this is where it gets deep, folks. This is some, this is some uh, all of God's word is serious. But this, uh, this is one of those verses I decided to zoom in on. The rest of the sermon is kind of a high-altitude flyover, if you will. Verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full of mixture, and he poureth out the same. But the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. So what does all this mean? Well, let's further investigate what God is saying here through his word. Verse 8a says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. This hand, Yod, of the Lord, Yehovah, is a cup. This cup is the Hebrew word, kos. It's used 34 times in the scriptures. It is symbolic to an unclean bird, most likely an owl, or perhaps the cup-like cavity of an owl's eye. We've all had pink eye, or a child with an infection in the eye and pink eye. It's, it's not a pretty thing. When I have an allergy, my eye is a little on the ugly side. You probably wouldn't want to get it too close to it because it looks like it's contagious, but our eye sockets can actually be very non-attractive. And that's what this, 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 this word is here, this cup in the Hebrew. It's like a repugnant po- uh, potion. I almost said poison. That would be a, a proper slip of word. But it's like a repugnant potion in the eye socket of a decaying owl. Verse 8b says that the wine is red. We have the cup, the eye socket. Now we have the wine that's in the socket, in the cup, which is red. This wine in this cup is the Hebrew word yayin, and it is used 140 times in the scriptures. And some of the wine in the scriptures is unfermented, non-alcoholic wine, but this wine is a fermented, intoxicating wine. It is very intoxicating. And this wine is red. This word red is the Hebrew word shamar, which means to boil up to ferment with scum or to glow with redness. Moving on to verse 8c, it says that this wine, this red wine in the cup is full of mixture. And this mixture is the Hebrew word masach, which means it's a mixture of wine and spices. We're putting this cup of wine together. We'll better understand it. Verse 8d says that he poureth out the same that he pours out this wine. To pour, nagar, means to stretch out, to deliver, or to trickle down. Then in verse 8e it says, but the dregs thereof. These dregs, shamar, or the settlings of this wine, it's the lees or the dregs in the bottom of the cup. And it says, it warns that all of the wicked in the earth shall wring them out and drink them. They're going to drink down these dregs. Who's the wicked? Bill Ritz was the wicked before he saved a wretch like me. Every person that is not regenerate, that is not born again of Christ's incorruptible seed, that is not, that is not God's elect, is this wicked. 
And apart from the Lord, even knowing I am now saved, I'm still nothing but 250 pounds of flesh. The same abaser, the Lord, whom promotes, demotes, or removes people that we saw in verses 6 and 7, is the same Lord that holds this potent cup in his holy hand. This potent cup contains the wine of judgment. God's wrath in that cup. In summary, when he pours it out, when he pours out the wrath, when God pours out his wrath, the wicked inhabitants of the earth will be compelled, shatath, compelled to drink it down. They'll be compelled and they'll be forced to drink down the wrath of Almighty God. And they will drink all of it. Hence, drink down the dregs. It's a powerful, powerful verse. Charles Spurgeon said this about this, this verse. The punishment of the wicked is prepared. God himself holds it in readiness. He has collected and concocted woes most dread. And in the chalice of his wrath, he holds it. They scoffed his feast of love. They they shall be dragged to his table of justice and made to drink their due desserts. I'd just like to talk about that at dinner time. Continuing. And the wine is red. The retribution is terrible. It is blood for blood, foaming vengeance for foaming malice. The very color of divine wrath is terrible, but must the taste, what must the taste be? It is full of mixture. Spices of anger and justice and incensed mercy are there. Their misdeeds, their blasphemies, their persecutions have strengthened the liquor as with potent drugs. Mingled, strong, and mantling high before the wrath divine. End of quote. John Calvin said this about this verse and this cup. As red wine among the Jews was the strongest and sharpest, we may suppose that it is here referred to, and the similitude is very appropriate, which represents God as having in his hand wine of a highly intoxicating character with which to make the ungodly drunk even to death. It is implied that the swiftness of divine vengeance is incredible, resembling the rapidity and power with which strong wine penetrates to the brain and either produces madness or kindles a fever. It is on this account said that the wine in God's cup is a red color. Is it said in Proverbs 23:31, look not upon the wine when it is red in his cup. End of quote. That's a lot in that verse. But church, I don't, I don't, I'm not too worried about the world, the lost world. They are enemies of Christ. My job and your job is to go out in the world and share or preach or the gospel and just trust in the Lord for the results. He's going to save his elect. I don't love the world like I love the church. Neither does God. But I hope and pray that nobody in this congregation would ever have to drink down those dregs. I hope and pray that nobody sitting in this church would have to drink down the wrath of Almighty God on Judgment Day. And it doesn't stop on Judgment Day. It's forever. Ever. For an eternity in hell. We all deserve it. And we're all going to be judged by God's law. 
I'm just going to talk about one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not lie. I've lied. And folks, so have you. One little white lie is all it takes to condemn me into hell. And that's where I deserve. And that's where I should go. Because that's where God says he will send unsaved sinners. Liars. But folks, the good news is this. That God gave us a remedy for that cup. The good news. Because of his love for his church. The bride of Christ. Again, that he came to us in the form of a man conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mother, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, the only man that ever lived that kept all of the law perfectly, the law that all of us have broke. He went to that cross and he drank down that cup of wrath. He went to that cross and he bore the full wrath of God on behalf of his church, God's elect. And he, Jesus was treated as if he was guilty, but he was perfect and innocent. And then the church, born again saints, we become, we get treated as if we never sinned. And Christ was treated as if he did sin. And then Jesus, when he was on that cross, exchanged our sins for his righteousness. That's when he was buried on the third day. He bodily rose from the grave. Christ rose from the grave on the third day. That's when he forever defeated death and conquered sin on behalf of God's elect. And then he ascended into heaven. We're right now on the 21st of February, 2021. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Son of God, is seated at the right hand of the Father. Will he intercede on your behalf if you truly repent and believe in the finished work of what Christ did on that cross? If you truly change your mind of who you are, whom God is, and trust in him alone for salvation. The Bible says you will be saved if you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and repent and believe in what Christ did on that cross and Christ alone. Because the Bible says that we're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and not over works, lest any man should boast. It is a gift of God. Moving on, next is verses 9 through 10. It's a closing song giving glory to God and the utter defeat of the foe. I believe this is the Lord Jesus speaking here. Many many, uh, authors do, and the many commentaries I read believe that this is actually Jesus speaking here. Um... That's what I believe, too. He praises the Father here. The one who will cut off the unregenerate. And the one whom will save his elect. That's whom he's praising. Beginning with verse 9 and 10. But I will declare forever. I will sing praises to God, the God of Jacob. Verse 10. All the horns of the wicked also will I cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. Two people groups are featured here in these two verses. The wicked and the righteous. The non-saved and the saved. Those not born again and those that are born again. The non-saved hold God's wrathful cup of wine. And it is filled to the brim. And it will drink down the wrath of Almighty God. But on behalf of God's elect, Christ's church, his bride of Christ, Christ took upon himself that full wrath of God. And though Christ cried out, Father, let that cup pass. Let that cup pass from me, because he knew he was going to drink 
the wrath and the sins of every sinner that belonged to Christ's church. But the Father poured it out and punished Jesus. And Christ received it. And his bride benefited from that. Christ is the benefactor. Born again Christians are the beneficiaries. We benefit so greatly from what Christ, the head of this church, did. The head of Mountain Reformed Baptist Church, the head of every other Reformed Baptist Church, the head of Christ's universal church that's all over this world, the head of the church that's already preceded us in death, that's already in glory, that's already in heaven. Christ drank that cup on their behalf. And so today, can we ponder on that is, after I close in prayer, Pastor Mike is going to host communion today. And would you hold that cup a little differently? We, I think we kind of did that last Sunday, didn't we? It was a 16-minute sermonette, 16-minute message before we did that communion. But hold that cup differently and realize that cup in there is a blessing. For Christians only. But there's also another cup that's full of wrath for the non-elect. Anybody here does not know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. If anybody is not born again, please repent and believe in that gospel of what Christ accomplished on that cross. Father, thank you for your word. You are holy, 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 and your Christ is righteous, the Lord God Almighty. Jesus, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Jesus, the King and ruler of this world. Jesus, the head of this church, the Alpha and the Omega, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus, who is the anchor of my salvation, the anchor of my soul, and the captain of my salvation. We lift up the name of Jesus above any other name. And we give you all the praise and glory. Soli Dea Glorious. Sola Scriptura. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.